What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Gerrymandering is baked into the political process as legislators remap the boundaries of their voting districts every 10 years, usually to the benefit of the party in control. Republicans have more than doubled their control of state legislatures since 2010, and Democrats are fighting back in court against the redistricting that Vice President Joe Biden said stacked the deck against the Democrats. They ended up with a lot of districts where the uh, the Lord Almighty could not defeat a Republican. They put so many Republicans in, it didn't matter. There's often a strong connection between race and political party. Further complicating the process, the Voting Rights Act requires states with large minority populations to consider race when drawing district lines. So when does the use of race in redistricting go too far? Today, the Supreme Court considered this issue and heard arguments in two racial gerrymandering cases, one in Virginia, the other in North Carolina. Our guests are election law experts Nate Persley, professor at Stanford University Law School, and Josh Douglas, professor at the University of Kansas Law School. Nate, will you explain the competing considerations the legislators are supposed to take into account with regard to race when redistricting? Well, legislators are under sort of two legal obligations under federal law. One is from the Voting Rights Act, uh, the parts that still remain, which says that you must make sure that minorities have an equal opportunity to elect their candidates of choice. And that often means that in areas of high minority concentration, you have to draw majority African-American and majority Latino districts. At the same time, the Constitution prevents states from using race too much. You can't use race as the predominant factor in the construction of a district. And so these cases are in part about how you uh, sort of square that circle. How do you draw districts that comply with the Voting Rights Act uh, but don't run afoul of the Constitution? Josh, the dynamic in these cases is very different than it was 20 or 30 years ago. It used to be that what you would see would be uh, a minority group or or, um, uh, minority uh, voters saying uh, you're not complying with that first thing that Nate was talking about, the Voting Rights Act and not giving us an opportunity to elect representatives of our choice. Now it seems to be that the districts are, they're saying, hey, these districts have too many um, racial minorities in them, more than we actually need. Can you explain why that, that evolution has taken place? Yeah, this is known as a phenomenon of called cracking and packing. Uh, and the basic theory is that, and particularly what you mentioned, putting almost too many minorities in one district, the theory goes that if you put as many minorities as possible in one district, they'll have a supermajority, uh, which means they will not have any influence in any of the surrounding districts. And so you've packed them into one uh, and made it uh, easy, extremely easy for them to win that one district, but uh, very difficult and impossible for them to, them to have an influence in the surrounding areas. Uh, and that's been one tactic that some states have used, uh, and some co- and courts have said that that's uh, unlawful. 
Nate, North Carolina's 12th district, which was at issue here, has been described as the nation's most oddly shaped. And the 1st and the 12th districts have been the subject of Supreme Court cases five times over the past 30 years. Is that a telling point that it's a very oddly shaped district and that they seem to be having a lot of problems? Well, I have to say, North Carolina has done uh, amazing work for the country in clarifying redistricting law and muddying it <laughs> at times. So uh, they've, pub- they've done a public service for, for uh, law professors like me and Josh. But I'll say this, which is that what, what North Carolina shows and dis- the sort of famous District 12 has shown is that uh, there are very difficult decisions that need to be made in order to ensure in areas of high minority concentration that minorities are able to elect their candidates of choice, uh, but that the rules of colorblindness that ordinarily govern uh, uh, government activity uh, uh, should not be uh, broken. And so you end up with this problem, where, especially in a context where one party is trying to gerrymander the other, um, that they end up using race as a proxy for politics. And so these constitutional and voting Rights Act considerations come in as ways to try to destabilize the gerrymander and say that you have, uh, you know, treated African Americans in a discriminatory way by uh, over concentrating them, as Josh said. Josh, uh, that was basically the argument that North Carolina made today in court, which is that for that District 12, uh, it was politics. That explains everything. Uh, what, what's the counter to, to that argument? And in particular, uh, some of the justices pressed the, the people challenging the district. How come you didn't present us an alternative map that we could have used to, to, to show how, how they could have achieved the same political end without using race quite so much? Well, I think underlying your question is the fact that the court is not policing partisanship in gerrymandering at all currently. Uh, the court has said that we're not going to touch uh, a case where partisanship or politics plays too much of a role in the line drawing process. And so in many ways, some of these challenges are kind of a end run around trying to challenge a partisan gerrymander through another form, uh, finding another way that the map uh, is unlawful because you can't challenge the partisanship of it. So that question uh, that the justices asked about, show us an alternative map that achieved your political goals just as well, but without having this race-based effect, uh, is an important part of the proof that uh, a challenger would have to bring and that the state would have to use uh, to defend the law. Um, And so there's this underlying notion of politics that the court is basically saying we're not touching. Uh, And that's, I think, one reason why you get these consistent uh, challenges to maps in North Carolina multiple times, because what is really going on is I think it's probably a little bit of both, uh, but yet the challengers can't uh, use partisanship, at least currently, until the court recognizes a standard. Uh, they can't use, uh, can't challenge a map because of that partisanship. Nate, is the, are the justices allowed, or is it before them, the political climate in North Carolina before the election? In other words, there was uh, an attempt to cut back early voting and other things that would specifically disadvantage African Americans. And so uh, a racial motivation uh, was shown to some. So is that part of it? I think it is part of it. I think, you know, the question that a lot of them will be asking is whether this gerrymander was part of a larger project to discriminate against African-American voters. Now, the constitutional question is simply whether these particular districts were drawn predominantly on the basis of race. And so 
in the normal parlance of redistricting, it's not that these plaintiffs are saying that their vote was diluted, that they should have gotten a third district instead of just having two districts. They're saying the mere fact that you uh, treated all of us as an undifferentiated group, African-Americans it is, uh, that you have then discriminated against us under the Constitution. Josh, that gets to one of the, the core questions in the case. Should that be enough? Should it be enough that they just show uh, that that race was used or should an effect on the ability to uh, to cast a, a vote that means something be part of the analysis? Well, I think that's what exactly what the justices are, are trying to grapple with here, because the prior case law simply says it needs to, or you can't have a predominant overriding interest be based on race. And now we're trying to define what that means. Does that mean that other normal redistricting criteria, like having compact districts, like trying to achieve population equality among districts, uh, if those are the considerations in a different, in addition to race, is race now a predominant factor? Um, and that's one of the, the arguments that the state is making here. I think in the Virginia case, in particular, the state is saying, "Look, well, we use these other criteria in addition, and therefore race can't be the predominant factor." Um, you know. Finding, figuring out whether race was a predominant factor, an important factor in making a decision is really difficult without some sort of smoking gun where you see the legislature saying, you know, let's move the lines this way or that way for racial reasons. We've been talking about Supreme Court oral arguments today in two racial gerrymandering cases with election law experts Nate Persley, professor at Stanford University Law School, and Josh Josh Douglas, professor at the University of Kentucky Law School. And our own Greg Storr was in the audience today listening to the arguments. Greg, was there any indication from the justices of which way they were leaning? Well, there's a sense, June. It, it, it felt like uh, we were going for a fairly narrow ruling. There is a, a precedent in this area from about a year and a half ago, a case involving Alabama, where the court revived a suit challenging Republican-drawn lines there on similar lines. That was a 5-4 decision with Justice Kennedy joining the liberals. It seemed like Justice Kennedy, at least in the Virginia case, was inclined to say, at a minimum, I want the lower court to take another look at this using a tougher standard. The North Carolina case was a little tougher to call because there is a, a lurking question there about a, uh, a state court case uh, challenging the same issue, and justices were concerned about how that case might affect this one. And, in fact, one of the key questions in that area came from Justice Ginsburg. Uh, so, uh, you know, th- that case is a, is a little harder to call. Uh, let, let me uh, turn back to Nate. Nate, you were going to say something before we we had to cut away. Uh, go ahead with what you were going to say, please. Well, this actually dovetails with what you just said, which there is a difference between these cases in that there is a concession with respect to Virginia that they drew districts at 55 percent African-American. And so if the court wants to just say that mechanical percentages uh, are not what's required under the Voting Rights Act and that doing so therefore violates the Constitution, they have a way out with the Virginia case and just say that you can't, you know, just sort of coarsely uh, group African-Americans in this manner. And uh, Josh... Justice Breyer, according to Greg's article, said he'd hoped that the last ruling, the 2015 ruling, would end these cases in this court, which it certainly doesn't seem to have done. What would end these cases going to the Supreme Court? Well, excuse me. Um, I think it's going to be hard to end these cases in general. 
because of a weird procedural quirk in these cases in that the Supreme Court has to hear them, uh, hear an appeal from a three-judge court. So, of course, the court could set down a, a harder standard, a stricter standard for lower courts to follow. But uh, the losing party has a right to appeal these three-judge district court cases directly to the Supreme Court, uh, and the Supreme Court has to, has to do something with them, whether it's uh, summarily affirm or deny. And whatever they do is precedential. So uh, I think Justice Breyer may be hoping for a clearer standard, um, but as long as courts are still in the business of redistricting and as long as we have this procedural rule with automatic appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, I don't see these cases ending anytime soon. Nate, let me circle back to that 55% point you were talking about. One of the questions in the courtroom today came from Justice Alito, where he essentially says, said that, hey, we're, when you're drawing lines for an entire decade, maybe it makes sense to have a little bit of a buffer here. And if you're going to have a, a, you know, kind of a, a set number, 55% minority seems like a pretty good one in terms of giving minority voters the opportunity to elect uh, uh, the candidate of, the, of their choosing. Well, that is right with respect to giving sort of foresight and um, some clear directions to people like me who end up drawing these lines. But, you know, this is the problem when you have two legal standards that are in conflict with each other. He would never say that for a school desegregation case that, for example, oh, well, if we had a district that was 50 percent African-American, that we should that that would be what the Constitution desires. For the most part, uh, the conservatives have always been hostile to the notion that you can have fixed quotas uh, and that that would be allowed by the Constitution. So the question is, why wouldn't that be the case here? And if you turn back the clock 20 years ago, when these cases first started coming up in the in the context of what's known as the Shaw versus Reno line of cases, um, it was this mechanical use of race that particularly irked the more conservative justices, uh, so much so that Justice O'Connor described it as tantamount to a political apartheid. And so now the tables have been turned, and the Democrats are suing uh, against these districts, and we'll see what they uh, decide to do. Josh, any final thoughts on whether uh, which way these are going to go? Well, I mean, I think the 55 percent number is problematic for some of the justices. I think a lot of them do not like using hard and fast numbers of certain requirements, although Nate's right that these states are really between a rock and a hard place in trying to comply with both the Voting Rights Act and the constitutional requirements. Um, so I could see that one certainly getting remanded and saying to Virginia, you can't use this hard and fast number. Uh, the North Carolina one, it's been, it had such a storied history that I, I wouldn't be surprised to see that one, adding another chapter and it being uh, get sent down again as well. We are going to have to leave it there. I want to thank our guest, Josh Douglas, law professor at the University of Kentucky, and Nate Persley, a law professor at Stanford University, talking about the voting rights cases at the Supreme Court uh, this week. The Supreme Court will uh, rule on them by June. That's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks to our technical director, Chris Tricomi, and our producer, David Sutcherman. You can find more legal news at BloombergLaw.com and BloombergBNA.com, plus sure, an thanks. invaluable okay, website for the legal community at BigLawBusiness.com. Coming up on Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Markets with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson. Stay tuned for that here on Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.